Okay, so we always want to remember where we're at. I know we've been over this several times, but it's really critical. I think we're trying to figure out what's going on. So this whole Bible study really has taken place in the Babylonian captivity uh, so far this year. So we talked about Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, very much involved in that time. So 70-year period of time. And then uh, we have here 538 uh, BC, the Edict of Cyrus, that they should return, rebuild the temple. And the first four chapters of Ezra are just historical. The, I mean, the actual person of Ezra as a historical figure is much, much later. So this book goes back and, and tells the story. First four chapters describe all of this and how here coming up to the end of chapter four that uh, the building stopped. And we'll read just a little bit to see what happened that led to, um, to everything kind of falling apart. And that's where um, these figures, uh, the last couple months, we've been talking about Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets that came along to get things started up again. And so remember the Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, were involved. And so it didn't take long, four years, once they got involved and things got rolling again, about four years later, the temple was dedicated. Okay, and that takes us up to Ezra 6. And then just notice here, Ezra, again, as a historical figure, comes on the scene at 458 BC, a long time Okay, we're, what, 70, 80 years from uh, when the Jews began to return initially uh, to Jerusalem. So we're going to talk about these reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, very dramatic kind of uh, radical things uh, that these um, two guys did to try to uh, get the people to, um, you know, give up some of the practices they were involved in. And then Nehemiah was, was sometime later, but Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries and so we'll just get into a little bit of Nehemiah to round out the story of Ezra this time. Okay, so this is how Ezra opens. Again, talking about Cyrus, giving this decree. So in the first year that Cyrus of Persia was emperor, the Lord made what he had said through the prophet Jeremiah come true. Remember, Jeremiah is the one who said it'll be 70 years in captivity. He moved the heart of Cyrus to issue the following command and send it out in writing to be read aloud everywhere in his empire. This is the command of Cyrus, emperor of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has made me ruler over the whole world. I mean, it's interesting. Cyrus, you know, most powerful person in the world at that time, here acknowledging that the Lord, the God of heaven, has made me ruler and has given me the responsibility of building a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. May God be with all of you who are his people. I mean, just find it interesting how many very prominent people like Nebuchadnezzar and here Cyrus that God has uh, you know, moved his heart. And there are other ways that can be translated, prompted, inspired, prodded, stirred up the spirit, that, that somehow God was successful um, here in Cyrus to you know, lead him in this direction. Kind of interesting. So the, the decree continues. You are to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who was worshipped in Jerusalem. And then the heads of the clans of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, and everyone else whose heart God had moved, got ready to go and rebuild the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. And so we have this group that uh, goes out. It's a pretty small number when you think about it. 42,360. Usually when you have lists of people like this, it's only men over the age of 20. They leave out the women and the children. Um, Here, I'm not sure. Because after listing this number, it goes on to talk about how many male and female servants there were and so on. But it's really a a pretty small number. 
Okay, remember the people that stayed behind, chose not to go back? That's the group of Esther. Those are the people that stayed in Persia. Okay, but it's a small number, especially when we compare it to the people that came out in the Exodus. This was only uh, the men, 605,000, 550. Okay, and um, when David gave a census, which remember was a bad idea, okay, it was only men over the age of 20, and it was 800,000 in Israel, 500,000 in Judah. So it's, it's kind of sad in a way here that we have this you know, large nation, and then we have this uh, really small amount that's left over uh, that would come back. <clears throat> well, anyway, there's a lot of controversy, a lot of forces working against the rebuilding of the temple. The enemies of the people of Judah and Benjamin heard that those who had returned from exile were re- rebuilding the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. And then the people who had been living in the land tried to discourage and frighten the Jews and keep them from building. They also bribed Persian government officials to work against them. They kept on doing this throughout the reign of Emperor Cyrus and into the reign of Emperor Darius. Okay, so a lot of forces against this. And then finally, at the end of Ezra 4, work on the temple had been stopped and had remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of Emperor Darius of Persia. And then this is where we've been talking about recently. At that time, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, began to speak in the name of the God of Israel to the Jews who lived in Judah and Jerusalem. And then we have Zerubbabel, Joshua. When they heard their messages, they began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and the two prophets helped them. So that's kind of catching up to where we are now in the story. Okay, so again, a lot of resistance. Almost at once, Governor Tatanai, if I'm saying that right, and other officials came to Jerusalem and demanded, who gave you orders to build this temple and equip it? They also asked for the names of all the men who were helping build the temple. But God was watching over the Jewish leaders, and the Persian officials decided to take no action until they could write to Emperor Darius and receive a reply. So they wrote an official letter to Darius stating the problem and asking you know, what he thought about this. So here's just a part of the letter. Now, if it please your majesty, have a search made in the royal records in Babylon to find whether or not Emperor Cyrus gave orders for this temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Because the Jews said, yes, Cyrus gave an order, and they didn't believe it. Okay, so they asked for proof. And, of course, a scroll was found containing the following record. In the first year of his reign, Emperor Cyrus commanded that the temple in Jerusalem be rebuilt. So they found it. Yes, he really did um, issue the decree. Okay, so then this was Darius's response, which is, which is kind of funny. So Darius sent the following reply to these same officials that came complaining. Stay away from the temple and do not interfere with its construction. Let the governor of Judah and the Jewish leaders rebuild the temple of God where it stood before. I hereby command you to help them rebuild it. Their expenses are to be paid promptly out of the royal funds received from taxes in west of Euphrates so that the work is not interrupted. Day by day, without fail, you are to give the priests in Jerusalem whatever they tell you they need, young bulls, sheep, or lambs to be burned as offerings to the God of heaven, or wheat, salt, wine, or olive oil. Okay, so it just kind of got thrown right back in their face. And so often we see this um, here in the Old Testament. And if you don't, well, here, this is to be done so they can offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God. I further command that if any disobey this order... A wooden beam is to be torn out of their houses, sharpened on one end, 
and then driven through their bodies. And their houses are to be made a rubbish heap. Okay, it's just amazing how many times that comes up. You know, you disobey Nebuchadnezzar is moved by Daniel's interpretation of the prophecy, and so he honors God. And if you don't, then, you know, all these horrible things I will do to you. So didn't quite get the non-coercive part of the message down. But anyway, so there, there they are. Now, um, so they finished the temple. Now, after that, I mean, if you're threatened with a wooden beam being driven through you, well, you'd probably want to get it done. So it only took them about four years then to finish the temple after that. And I just uh, put this here because, remember, uh, in Babylon, the language was Aramaic. And so Ezra is an interesting book. It goes back and forth between uh, up to this point, it had been in Aramaic, then we have a long section in Hebrew, and then it goes back into the um, Aramaic. <clears throat> okay, so uh, one other thing that we just have to bring up. I know I mentioned it briefly before, but uh, so we have Daniel up here in this time in Babylon, and... Again, 22 years later, we have the temple uh, that's rebuilt. So we want to put uh, Daniel, and remember his prayer, which we read, his very moving prayer. I think it's uh, the most moving prayer in the Old Testament, perhaps, um, which uh, just impassioned plea to return back to Jerusalem in kind of this corporate sense that our sins, what we have done, he really identified himself with the people. And so his prayer, we know when it was, because he said when he, when he prayed this, it was in 539 B.C. And he was thinking about the 70 years that Jeremiah would be in ruins, according to what the Lord had told the prophet Jeremiah. And I prayed earnestly. And he's sitting in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. Okay, and so and remember, after he prayed, nothing happened, 21 days, got this long period of time. And then the, the, the angel Gabriel comes and says, Daniel, don't be afraid. God loves you. And he said, I've come in answer to your prayer, that prayer about the Jews returning to Jerusalem. And uh, this very unusual, um, curious passage here then, that uh, the angel Gabriel tells him, well, this is what's been going on since you prayed. That the angel prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. Now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. After that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. And there's no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He's responsible for helping and defending me. And, you know, we we already just read the story. We see how much controversy, how much resistance there was for the Jews to go back and rebuild um, Jerusalem. And I think, again, this is just, it's pulling back this curtain and saying, okay, look what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, we, we tend to imagine that everything that happens, it, they're just, there are two players involved. There's God and there's us. Okay, but this other part of the triangle here, a, a non-human um, agency that is also involved behind the scenes, and in this case, actively working against God's plans. Um, I find this a helpful dimension. We think about prayer, the, the complexities of prayer that uh, really, you know, it does involve us in this cosmic conflict, great controversy process that's really complicated. Okay, but I would say Daniel's prayer um, here had a powerful effect. Okay, look, look at all that happened kind of as a result of that prayer. Oh, and uh, I meant to mention this at the beginning. Uh, Dr. Tonstead has a class uh, every uh, Saturday mornings at 10.30 in A-Level Amphitheater, 
And uh, he's asked uh, my wife and I to present the next two weeks. So um, this Saturday at 10.30, um, I'll be giving a talk. It's kind of like a big overview of the Old Testament. And so if any of you are interested, it's much more interactive than this. So people, you know, ask a lot of questions. And then uh, next week, uh, my wife, Dorothy, who's a neurologist at the VA, uh, will be talking about the atonement. So if you have an interest in either of those two kind of big-ticket items, then uh, that's uh, Saturday at 10.30. But anyway, uh, the cosmic conflict. You know, we don't have this curtain pulled back on a lot of stories in the Old Testament. And I've mentioned a little bit the relative absence of Satan in the Old Testament. But I'd like to just kind of imagine that there is this cosmic conflict brewing all the way through the Old Testament, even though it's not really in your face so much. In the New Testament, I mean, more than 50 times, even before we get to Revelation, we've got you know, uh, this theme very much um, in your face. You know, first thing Jesus does, he's out in the desert and engaged in a conversation with Satan. But uh, we just kind of think through some of these stories. We think about the flood, for example, that Noah had no faults, was the only good man of his time. Is that literally true? He was the only good man of his time. He lived in fellowship with God, but everyone else was evil in God's sight. Okay, was he really the last good man? Um, And God said to Noah, go into the boat with your whole family. I found that you are the only one in all the world who does what is right. I think you could make a case he really was. Because if there were, you know, if God had 100 friends, don't you think they would have gotten on the boat? He really was the last last person, really, that had a, a connection with God. So if we try to imagine a cosmic conflict, and we imagine an enemy who is trying to prevent, you know, the coming Messiah, well, he's almost succeeded, right? I mean, if, if a world is totally extinguished of a knowledge of God, imagine several generations just go on after Noah dies, and God's completely lost contact with the human race. Okay, what, what would be the result of that? So again, if we, if we maybe perhaps imagine a cos- cosmic conflict and the adversary has is, is almost won the battle at this point, uh, we could see the, the flood perhaps as a rescue mission. Save the last man with a, a connection with God and the avenue for the Messiah, there would still be a possibility of that. I think maybe it gives us another way of looking at some of these stories. And we just read on a little bit. Uh, Of course, then God finds Abraham. And God gave him a promise. Your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. They will be slaves there, will be treated cruelly for 400 years. And after four generations, your descendants will return. Okay, so we've got a prophecy that this is going to happen. After 400 years, four generations. And then, you know, right on time, well, it's interesting that then there's a death decree that the Pharaoh told the Hebrew women, uh, when the Hebrew women would give birth, to kill the baby if it's, if it's uh, a boy. You know, again, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of speculating here, but it is interesting that right at this time we had this death decree, and again, could there be someone behind the scenes worried, okay, maybe this is the Messiah that's going to come now, and we have a death decree that's right on the, the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Um, Also interesting that Isaiah, which was written a couple hundred years before this whole story, uh, we have Cyrus named by name. God would say, I say to Cyrus, you are the one who will rule for me. You will do what I want you to do. You will order that Jerusalem be rebuilt and that the foundations of the temple be laid. The Lord has chosen Cyrus to be king. He's appointed him to conquer nations. He sends him to strip kings of their power. The Lord will open the gates 
of cities for him. So we had this person, Cyrus. Uh, I mean, I guess you could take the position this, this was inserted hundreds of years later, but what if it wasn't? And I think we can put this in the book of Isaiah a long time before it actually happened. Um, you know, is, is the adversary interested in some of these things? And then Osiris does come on the scene. And then we have this, again, this struggle back and forth that uh, perhaps, again, the adversary would know, okay, this, I better work on this situation. And so we, we see what happens with Daniel's prayer. Um, now, one prophecy in Daniel we didn't talk about, but I find it a really interesting one. Um, where, where Daniel would see that there's seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild the Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. And after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. We'd have to spend a long time on these few verses, but I, I'm fairly impressed that this is a good uh, prediction, um, in, in, at least in a timeline, of the coming Messiah. Okay, so let's just make that claim. But again, it's just interesting. It seems like right on time, guess what? Another death decree. Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its neighborhood who were two years old and younger. Um, So again, um, can we just say that there is this cosmic conflict and we are not often given insights into exactly um, what's going on behind the scenes, but yet we can kind of perhaps fill in some of the pieces and imagine um, an adversary at work. Okay, so let's uh, let's continue on now with the story of Ezra. So many years later, remember, eighty years after they they went back to Jerusalem, uh, now we have this person Ezra. So many years later, when Artaxerxes was emperor of Persia, there was a man named Ezra. He traced his ancestors back to Aaron, the high priest. Ezra was a scholar with a thorough knowledge of the law. Ezra set out from Babylonia for Jerusalem with a group of Israelites. Ezra had devoted his life to studying the law of the Lord, to practicing it, to teaching all its laws and regulations to the people of Israel. Now, Emperor Artaxerxes, again, all these powerful people that that are involved in the plot. Emperor Artaxerxes gave the following document to Ezra, the priest and scholar. You, Ezra, using the wisdom which your God has given you, are to appoint administrators and judges to govern all the people in west of Euphrates who live by the law of your God. You must teach that law to anyone who does not know it. And if any disobey the laws of your God or the laws of the empire, they are to be punished promptly by death or by exile or by confiscation of their property or by imprisonment. So again, it's very much punishment if you do anything against the emperor. And, you know, we read these, and they don't make much of a, an impression. Okay, he went from Babylon to Jerusalem. But let's just go to Google Maps here and see. From ancient Babylon to Jerusalem, that's about a 1,000 miles. Okay, this is a long journey that Ezra took with all of these priests and, and other individuals. Okay, this is a long trip. And he had just kind of uh, boasted to the emperor that God takes care of us. God will protect us. And so because of that, then he had kind of a, a dilemma. So he gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before our God and to ask him to lead us on our journey and protect us and our children and all our possessions. I would have been ashamed to ask the emperor for a troop of cavalry to guard us from any enemies during our journey. I mean, after you've just boasted about your God and then you say, well, we need lots of protection on this journey. So he decided not to ask. Uh, Because I had told him that our God blesses everyone who trusts him, but that he is displeased with and punishes anyone who turns away from him. 
So we fasted and prayed for God to protect us, and he answered our prayers. Okay, and they arrived safely, and I'll leave out the part here, but they arrived, they showed everyone the, the document from Artaxerxes, they offered their sacrifices. Okay, and now we get to kind of the question that, uh, that I have for you. Okay, so after all of this, all the sacrifices, and he told them what Artaxerxes had, uh, had given him to do, some of the leaders of the people of Israel called or came and told me that the people, the priests and the Levites, had not kept themselves separate from the people in the neighboring countries of Ammon, Moab, and Egypt, or from the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Amorites. They were doing the same disgusting things which these people did. Jewish men were marrying foreign women, and so God's holy people had become contaminated. The leaders and officials were the chief offenders. When I heard this, I tore my clothes in despair, tore my hair and my beard, and sat down crushed with grief. I sat there grieving until the time for the evening sacrifice to be offered, and people began to gather around me. All those who were frightened because of what the God of Israel had said about the sins of those who had returned from exile. So while Ezra was bowing in prayer in front of the temple, weeping and confessing these sins, a large group of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, weeping bitterly. Okay, and then one person, Shechaniah, said to Ezra, We have broken faith with God by marrying foreign women. But even so, there is still hope for Israel. Now we must make a solemn promise to our God that we will send these women and their children away. We will do what you and the others who honor God's commands advise us to do. We will do what God's law demands. So is this the right thing to do? Send all the wives, send all the children away? Uh, is that what you'd recommend? Well, that's what happened. So they, they called all the people together. So a message was sent throughout Jerusalem and Judah that all those who had returned from exile were to meet in Jerusalem by order of the leaders of the people. And again, a strong punishment if you don't do it. If any failed to come within three days, all their property would be confiscated and they would lose their rights to be members of the community. I mean, just imagine if we did things um, that way today. You know, we're going to have a meeting of all the medical students, and if you're not there, your property will be confiscated, and you will no longer be medical students here at Loma Linda. I mean, that, that's what, you know, they're doing here. So how would you feel being treated that way? Well, I guess they were kind of used to it. That's just, just how things were done. And this is what happened. So the people, after being told the, the whole problem, they shouted an answer, we will do whatever you say. And then we have this long list this is the list of the men who had foreign wives. Priests listed by clans, and I just gave an example here, but it goes from verse 18 to 44. And they list all of the men, and, and I counted them, 111. All of these men had foreign wives, and on the spot, they divorced them and sent them and their children away. I mean, can you imagine 111 families that were just uh, broken apart at that time? So again, what, what I'm trying to grapple with a little bit here is, was that the right thing? Uh, would there be another way of dealing with the situation? Um, and what do you think about some of the methods that are used? And maybe while you think about that, let's just skip over to Nehemiah, because he did the exact same thing. Okay, so we're on the same subject here. And the people would say, we will not intermarry with the foreigners living in our line. If foreigners bring, bring grain or anything else to sell us on the Sabbath or on any other holy day, we will not buy from them. 
every seventh year we will not farm the land and we will cancel all debts. So going back to all of the, the commands they've been given in the books of Moses, and they're going to obey them. <clears throat> well, you know, it's never lasts for very long. Because at that time, Nehemiah saw people in Judah pressing juice from grapes on the Sabbath. Others were loading grain, wine, grapes, figs, and other things on their donkeys and taking them into Jerusalem. I warned them not to sell anything on the Sabbath. Some people from the city of Tyre were living in Jerusalem, and they brought fish and all kinds of goods into the city to sell to our people on the Sabbath. I reprimanded the Jewish leaders and told them, look at the evil you're doing. You're making the Sabbath unholy. This is exactly why God punished your ancestors when he brought destruction on this city. And yet you insist on bringing more of God's anger down on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Okay, and it wasn't just the Sabbath. But look how he dealt, dealt with it. So I gave orders for the city gates to be shut at the beginning of every Sabbath, as soon as evening began to fall, and not to be opened again until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my men at the gates to make sure that nothing was brought into the city on the Sabbath. Once or twice, merchants who sold all kinds of goods spent Friday night outside the city walls. But I warned them, it's no use waiting out there for morning to come. If you try this again, I'll use force on you. And from then on, they did not come back on the Sabbath. So he was really a take charge uh, kind of a guy. Now we come back to the problem of foreign women. At that time, I also discovered that many of the Jewish women had married, uh, men had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or some other language and didn't know how to speak our language. I reprimanded the men, called down curses on them, beat them, pulled out their hair. And then I made them take an oath in God's name that never again would they or their children intermarry with foreigners. And, you know, he does rightly say that it was foreign women that made Solomon sin and that this, this really was, um, you know, how Solomon got involved in all of this. So it was a huge problem um, leading up to all of this. Okay, so... Um, Again, just what do we think about the methods? Now, it's amazing here. I just did a Google search because I wanted an illustration. So I think I typed in something like Loma Linda, medical students. And about the sixth slide is someone that looks familiar down there giving a lecture. So I said, wow, on the web. And there's something that looks familiar. There's the facial nucleus. And the, anyway, I won't go through all of that. But, um, and again, but just we want to think about um, how would you feel you know, having things enforced on you like this. Is there a time when it is uh, appropriate to really have the screws put down to obey? Let's just say we're talking about lecture attendance, okay, which, um, you know, that's a good thing. Wouldn't you agree? How, how far should uh, one go to enforce that? Okay, should we use the methods of Nehemiah and Ezra? Okay, maybe not talk about wooden beams being, you know, sharpened and all of that, but... Um, you know, is this, does this work to get people to obey? Well, it, you know what? It actually did work in terms of obedience because after this, there is really no record of the people intermarrying with foreigners. This really did put an end to it. Okay, and when Jesus comes on the scene several hundred years later, uh, were the people obedient at that time? Well, they were. Um, they were quite obedient actually. They were keeping the law. Boy, were they careful with the Sabbath. I mean, they were, at least by the book, they really were keeping the rules. Okay, so the question is, uh, wasn't that a good thing? 
And here's where we get to Kohlberg's six stages of, of moral development. Do you learn this in medical school? Talk about this a little bit. What's that? You just learned it. Okay. Well, you probably know it better than I do, but I'm just going to bring out a couple of things uh, from this. If we go through the, the early stages, uh, my daughter is a, a student at PUC, just brought this home. So we had a good, we talked through a lot of this. But anyway, level one is that you follow and obey who have, whoever has the most power. And what is the motivation for doing right at a very early stage of Kohlberg's development? It's to avoid punishment or perhaps for reward. Okay, so we do what is right to avoid punishment. And if we look here at stage six, which is really focused on uh, principles, the principles that one lives by, laws and rules are to be obeyed because they rest on principles, because they're consistent with principles. And perhaps we would even disobey rules and laws if they violate the deeply ingrained principles that are there. And what's the motivation for doing right in stage six, it's you do what is right because it is right, not because you need a rule to do what is right. Okay, and so I think perhaps we could say that, well, I guess the least we could, the, the minimum point we could make is that perhaps God is meeting people at a stage that only respond to uh, obedience for punishment or reward. And perhaps God is willing to meet people at that level. But is that a good level to stay at? Okay, and uh, Graham Maxwell always uses this illustration, which is, I think, an excellent one. Children, you know, um, our kids never really wanted to brush teeth when they were little. Okay, and so what do you do as a parent? Uh, do you sit your child down and explain a lot about the physiology of not brushing teeth and cavities and all of that? It really doesn't make a lot of sense. So sometimes you just do need to resort to a little bit of, you know, look, I'm dad, you're going to brush teeth. And maybe there's some punishment involved if you don't brush your teeth. Okay, but again, how would you feel? Your child grows up, goes to medical school, and calls you and says, Dad, I brushed my teeth. You know, are you happy? That'd be pretty sad if we're still back in that kind of a, you know, punishment uh, model. Why do we brush teeth when we get older? Well, it makes sense. We just do it because um, we know it's the right thing to do, and now we have, we have a good understanding of why if we don't brush our teeth, bad things happen. So there's a maturity that happens. We do what is right because it is right, not because we're compelled or forced um, to do what is right. Okay, so if we want to think of obedience here in terms of um, stages, okay, uh, an early stage would be, well, we obey for hope of reward or fear of punishment. Okay, but that would really be an immature uh, reason for obedience. Okay, and, and I would say, Obedience because we love God, well, that has to be there, but that is not obedience in the highest sense. Again, if my child grew up and called me in his 20s, you know, to say, Dad, I have no idea why it makes sense to brush teeth, but I love you, so I brush my teeth today. Okay, well, that's, that's still rather immature. I mean, yeah, son, I'm glad you love me, but um, that's not the best reason for brushing your teeth. Okay, the, the best reason for obedience I would say, is that we agree with God and we see that everything he's asked us to do makes sense. And then obedience is done in the highest sense of freedom. And it's not because we're trying to obey a list, not because we feel compelled or forced to do anything. Uh, this is really when we're free, that we do what we want to do. But what we want to do are all of the things that are um, consistent with um, God's kingdom. So I think we can look at it this way. 
We have in the Old Testament many, many commands, many specific commands given for a specific time. Um, unusual commands that we can't identify with. You know, you, many times in the books of Moses, do not wash a kid in its mother's milk, a goat in its mother's milk. Okay, uh, have any of you ever been tempted to do that? Okay, but uh, no, it's been discovered that in, the, in a lot of the pagan religions, they did that. So, okay, we need to have a command for that. Okay, all kinds of things. Um, you know, just as a parent, again, when you have kids, you'll identify with this. I, we need to come up with all kinds of rules. When our kids were toddlers, um, for some reason, they kept wanting to get into the cat litter box, so we had to make a big deal. Do not play in the cat litter box. Okay, but, but that's a rule for immaturity. Okay, and again, that's not something that uh, you would post on the wall of your house, rules of the house, but it's given for your immature kids. So we have this kind of a pyramid here that we have laws given for a specific time, and then we have Ten Commandments, which... You know, the first four have to do with our relationship with God. The last six have to do with uh, relationship with our neighbor. Okay, so this is pointing towards something that is, uh, of course, closer to the ideal. And then many times in the New Testament, Jesus would say, you know, all laws fulfilled in loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And then ultimately, love. Okay, but again, just imagine working with immature um, children. You, you have to gradually work towards something that is closer to the ideal with laws that, that seem light years from the ideal. And that's what God, is, I think, had to do um, in the Old Testament. I mean, in a sense, Jesus, if we're trying to make a list, Jesus makes it much harder. He adds to the law, if we want to look at it that way. I mean, he would say things like, uh, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't even look at a woman. In, in a certain way. Or you've heard it said, don't murder, and I tell you, don't even hate. Okay, do we want to make a list out of that? Okay, just add to the list? Or can we say that what Jesus really came to do was to, to transform us from within, to change us? You, you can't keep a list like that. You have to be changed from within. So he came to, uh, to plant principles um, deep within us that would have a, a, a reforming effect, not to, not to multiply laws and lists. Okay, so I think it's, it should be very, um, um, it should have an impact on us when we think about the Pharisees, who in many ways um, were like us. Um, they came out of all of this. And finally, I mean, we, this whole point in the Old Testament has just been rebellion from cover to cover, horrible rebellion. And now we finally have a change where the people have buckled down and they've said, okay, we're going to obey. And I think that's wonderful, but there has to be can, there has to be growth and development and not just to, to stick with the rules because look at the things they were doing. I mean, this is not bad. They were keeping, keeping the rules, but for the wrong reasons, I would say. Uh, believe me, they would never miss church attendance. Nothing wrong with going to church, okay? but perhaps doing it for the wrong reason. Uh, Jesus commented how they even tithe the tiny little seeds. They were trying to be so careful. Uh, remember he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And they kept coming to Jesus, quoting the scriptures. They had the Bible memorized. Okay, Again, nothing wrong with Bible reading. Uh, remember Jesus talked about, you'll send a missionary halfway across the world to win one convert. But when you do, you make him as much a child of hell and, and all of this. So, um, you know, nothing wrong with mission work. Okay, nothing wrong with the Sabbath. But all of this was done as a list-keeping rule, dominated, and it was, didn't come from freedom. It didn't come with a, really a sense of purpose or understanding why, how some of these things fit in. 
And uh, I, it, I think for me, it's a, perhaps the most shocking verse here in the Gospel of John that uh, we will come to. That uh, on the crucifixion, that the Jews, since it was the day of Sabbath preparation, and so the bodies wouldn't stay on the crosses over the Sabbath, it was a high holy day that year, petitioned Pilate that their legs be broken to speed death, and the body is taken down. So why did they want to break legs to speed death? They were trying to get home to keep the Sabbath, to think that, you know, the, the crucifixion, God is there in human form, and the motivation is, you know, our, our Sabbath observance is threatened by this. We better speed death so we can make it home to keep the Sabbath. I mean, that's, that's really a, a horrible display of having the, completely the wrong priorities and, and understanding of things. You know, their offense at doing good things on the Sabbath, doing miracles, helping people, that we're actually more concerned about a certain interpretation of the law. Okay, and, and these are the people that, that Jesus was dealing with. Okay, so, so Paul would kind of put this together. So we say that the Gentiles, who are not trying to put themselves right with God, were put right with him through faith, trust. While God's people, who were seeking a law that would put them right with God, did not find it. My friends, how I wish with all my heart that my own people might be saved. So he's talking about the Jews. How I pray to God for them. I can assure you that they are deeply devoted to God. I mean, it takes a lot of willpower to obey like that. They were deeply devoted, but their devotion is not based on true knowledge. They have not known the way in which God puts people right with himself and instead have tried to set up their own way, okay, again, through keeping the list. And so they did not submit themselves to God's way of putting people right. For Christ has brought the law to an end so that everyone who believes is put right with God. So Christ has brought the law to an end and now murder, stealing, it's all okay. And what does that mean? He's put the law to an end. No, he came to put the law to write it on our hearts. And all law ultimately points to love. Love for God, love for neighbor. So as Christians, we have really one law. And if you're doing this, what laws will you break? Or Jesus would say, I give you a new commandment, love one another. Of course, this is not a new commandment. It's just that we've never done it. Okay, so our one commandment is to love one another and how do we know what that looks like? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Okay, this should be the hallmark of any Christian. Okay, we have one supreme law. We love one another. If you have love, love for one another, then everyone will know that you are my disciples. Okay, we want to talk about what's, what identifies us as Christians. Um, this is all what it points to. Okay, so again, freedom is what we have. So... I think um, th this verse here in Galatians, uh, which I won't read, but, you know, again, when what you want to do is what is perfectly consistent with God's kingdom, you're completely free. It means you'll do a lot of good things. You'll do a lot of these laws uh, that, and things that are advised that people would do, but you're not doing it in a sense of list keeping. You're doing it in the highest sense of freedom. And I think that's what it's all about. All right, so let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I think uh, there's certainly much to admire in the fact that uh, you have been uh, certainly stooped to such a great deal to reach us in our rebellion in human history, to give lots of laws and rules that confuse us in the 21st century, um, but uh, apparently necessary for a certain time and culture. Uh, please help us to uh, respond to you in the highest sense of freedom, rather than list-keeping that uh, we can see the highest ideal is revealed in Christ and begin to treat other people as you treated them when you were on the earth. Amen.